Beloved congregation, this is our God's word to us this morning. Let us give our undivided attention to the reading of it. There came to him, that is Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Uh, we'll stop our reading at this point for now. Let us ask God's blessing on our time in his word. Father, we claim to know you. We claim to want to know you. But we don't spend enough time in your word. We listen to your word, but we are quick to forget what we have heard. We remember, but we don't meditate upon its implications. Forgive us. As we come to your word this morning, open our eyes to see all that you have said, ears to hear. May we listen closely and may we consider all its implications for us and for our lives. Don't let us leave here without being changed, convicted, encouraged, renewed, transformed. Meet us in your word, we pray. And do your work in us And through your scriptures, we ask in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Well, lately in our study of Luke, we have seen a number of questions posed to Jesus, all of which have been intended to trap him. Uh, The chief priests and the scribes, they asked him by what authority he cleansed the temple, uh, thinking that they caught him because only they, they believed, could give authority, forgetting that there was one with greater authority than them. Uh, A delegation of Pharisees and Herodians came and questioned him about paying taxes, trying to get him in trouble with somebody. And now come the Sadducees. These were a group of theologians in Israel of priestly descent. uh, And they didn't believe in the resurrection, in angels, or in spirits. So they don't believe in an afterlife. They... uh, Now, for us, when we meet people like that, they tend to be not religious people. They tend to be naturalists, atheists. And that's not the Sadducees at all. They are deeply religious. Uh, They just believed that you only have this life. 
That's it. And when you die, there is no more. How you live then on, in this life is all you have. And so for them, ethics were deeply important. In fact, they only saw the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as being authoritative. They, they didn't follow the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. And, and so far, uh, all these attacks to trip up Jesus by the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians, they've, they've all failed to get Jesus in troubles. And so now the Sadducees are going to come and they're going to give it their best shot. And what is their approach? Well, it's going to be their pet issue, the resurrection. And much like that student in your college class who thought he had the ultimate question to stump the professor, they came and proposed a situation where seven brothers uh, all had married the same woman. And the question is, okay, so... In the resurrection, if there really is this afterlife, which of the brothers will be her husband? Now, you might simply dismiss this as absurd or gross, but there's a reason for their question. Because in Deuteronomy 25, uh, the scriptures say this, if, a brother dwell, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So this son that was born uh, to the new marriage would be considered the heir of the deceased brother. And he would inherit uh, that deceased brother's portion of the land. And this is how a family's portion in the promised land was to be maintained and preserved throughout the generations, even in the event of premature death. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because it's what happened in Genesis 38 with, uh, with Judah, the son of Jacob. You might remember this. He had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. I don't... last name's a little bit unfortunate. Uh, but, but Ur marries Tamar and died before they could have children. And so... Judah does the respectable thing, and, and he gives Onan, the secondborn, to, to Tamar. But he too died before they could have children. And at this point, Judah starts to get a little bit nervous. <laughs> and so he puts off, and he refuses to give Tamar his third son. And then, of course, much family drama ensued. It's also the law that lies behind Boaz marrying Ruth after Malon died when they were down in Moab. And so it's, it's a well-known law in Israel's history, but there's also this apocryphal story in Israel's literature uh, of a woman named Sarah who had uh, seven husbands, all brothers, and they all died before she was able to have children. Sadducees know the story probably, and they think, oh, we've got gold here. Uh, and so they, promote, they propose this story to Jesus, a scenario built around this story, uh, that the brothers all marry the woman in order to obey the law of Moses, and yet none of them has a child. You've got one bride for seven brothers, maybe a musical, and, and the question is, who 
gets the woman in the resurrection. And they think, checkmate, drop the mic, roll credits, Jesus is done. You can almost see them sit back, fold their arms with a smug look on their face and say, try to get yourself out of this one, Jesus. And he has two simple answers for them. The first is that they have catastrophically misunderstood the nature of the resurrection and the life to come. When they hear people talk about the resurrection, the the life to come, they think it's just a continuation of this life minus death. And so what you see around you now and how you live now, you expect then. So marriage, children, jobs, societal relations, and so on. And if you see the life to come in this way, you can't help but begin to find problems. They just happen to pick marriage to, to pick on. But how often do we do the same? How often do we think of the life to come simply as this kind of continuation, but a little bit better of, of this version? You know, and so we say, really, I'll reserve judgment. We say things like, won't worshiping God for all eternity just get boring? Because we'll think that we can be discontent with doing what we were created to do. As if sin will still bring a dissatisfaction with the most satisfying thing that could ever be. We, we say things like, when I get to heaven, I think I'll live by the ocean. As if, as if heaven's all about just finding the right real estate. Or, or when I get to heaven, I'm going to be an amazing basketball player. We fill heaven with these mundane things of this life because we're, we are completely incapable of imagining what true perfection is like. And so it is with Sadducees. And so Jesus simply points out well, that marriage, as wonderful of a gift as it is, is, is for this life. It was never meant to be eternal. This is why our wedding vows are until death do us part. But the way Jesus points this out is really interesting. He says that those found worthy to enter into heaven neither marry nor die because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now, before you spend all your time trying to figure out what does it mean I'm going to be like the angels? Do angels have genders? What you know, you, you get, people have, have gotten themselves into all sorts of knots thinking about what Jesus says here. And really, I think what we need to see is this is most likely simply a reference to Psalm 8. Contemplating creation, Psalm 8 asks, What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? If this sounds familiar, it was our call to worship this morning. And then it goes on and says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the scriptures testify that man is made lower than the angels, but only for a little while. It's temporary. There's a day coming when at least some of us will be equal to the angels. And the question is when? 
Well, surely not in this life. And so it must be in the next, in the resurrection. When that happens, we will be like them, neither given in marriage nor taken in marriage. The Sadducees' question is misguided because they have not listened to the Scriptures. Now, they'll simply object that they don't believe the Psalms are authoritative. That's the Psalms, Jesus. We're Sadducees. We only believe in the five books of Moses. Now, Jesus knows that, and that's probably why he starts with the Psalms. Just because they don't think the Psalms matter doesn't mean that God doesn't think the Psalms matter. Jesus is not going to fall into their trap of letting them set the rules. But just to make it clear that they're not off the hook, he does go to Moses and point out that Moses agrees with him. And he takes them back to Exodus 3 and the passage about the burning bush. This is a passage very well known to the Sadducees. It's where God uh, first revealed himself to Moses. And, and there he says to Moses, as he identifies this, he says, Moses, I am the God of your father, Abraham, the God of your father, Isaac, the God of your father, Jacob. Now you say, so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that, that God did not say, I was the God of your father, Abraham. The, I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob, who are no more. He says, I am. Present tense, today. In other words, God is telling Moses that he is still Abraham's God. They still have a relationship. And how can that be true unless Abraham is still alive? And so their beloved Moses believed in the resurrection. And so Jesus says, checkmate, drop the mic, roll credits. It's over. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't actually need to go to Psalm 8 or Exodus 3. Because the truth be told, it was over for the Sadducees before it began. The very law they cited about the brothers assumes the resurrection. They were just too eager to prove Jesus wrong to notice. Because we need to ask why. Why was, why was there a law requiring a man to marry his brother's widow if there was no heir? Now, we've already acknowledged that this law strikes our modern American uh, ears as a little odd. So there has to be a reason why, something behind it. Otherwise, why would God require it? Well, it's about inheritance. It's about the land. One of God's greatest gifts to Abraham was, uh, and to his descendants was the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. That land was subsequently obtained after the uh, exodus out of Egypt, and it was divided into 12 portions for the 12 tribes, and then those portions were divided into smaller family plots. And God made it clear that those plots were never to pass out of those families. And so he put all sorts of provisions in his law. Like like, uh, the jubilee, when things would revert to their original owners. 
and the law of the kinsman redeemer. Uh, the kinsman redeemer is a law, uh, the one, the very one the, the Sadducees cited. And it was there so that even if someone died without an heir, he would not lose his inheritance in the land. His brother or or a close relative would come and marry that widow and he would resurrect that line back from the dead. Because in God's kingdom, not even death can prevent the inheritance from being passed on. The very law they quote assumes that God is interested in what happens after death, that he resurrects lines and he provides inheritance. Now I said the land was one of God's greatest gifts, but it was not the greatest gift. Because it itself was intended to teach his people about something greater, something more permanent, a a greater inheritance. And this goes back to Adam. Adam was created for heaven. That, was, that would be his inheritance should he be found worthy. Uh, the alternative, if he was not found worthy, was death. And that's physical, spiritual, and eternal death. And we know how the story goes. Adam, Adam proved himself unworthy. He, he didn't obey. He sinned and he brought death upon himself. He brought death upon his children. And he forfeited his share in the heavenly inheritance, the heavenly land. And the question that that we end Genesis 3 with is, is all lost? Is there any hope? Will, Will death have the final word? Or can heirs be raised up from the dead? And the answer is that with God there's always hope. And so the whole Old Testament is preparing us for how God would accomplish that, how he would do that. In order to rescue Adam and many of his descendants, God himself would have to become one of their brothers. He would have to become a man and take on flesh and blood. He'd become human. And that would mean that for a little while, the creator of the angels would himself be made lower than the angels he created. He would enter into a fallen, sin-stained world. He would be subjected to all sorts of abuse. And he would even allow death itself to consume him so that he might conquer it and plunder death of its claim on us by offering his life in our place he he paid the debt we owed in full and so sin death and the devil they they lost their rights on on our eternity and he resurrected our inheritance he restored adam's line And he conquered death. When he died, though, he did not stay dead. As he promised, he rose on the third day to prove his victory over death. And that that comes with implications. Because the one who can do that, one who is more powerful than death itself, is not to be underestimated. 
And that's where he goes on to address in the final verses of our passage. So let me read the verses 39 through 44. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For for David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now, don't mistake the praise of the scribes to mean that they're suddenly his friends. (laughs) They're just happy that he's been helpful in humiliating the Sadducees who they're constantly debating with. And so long as Jesus is helping them in their power struggle, they'll take his help. But they are not ready to bow their knees to him. And so he turns around and he asks a question. Quoting Psalm 10, he he asks, How could David call his future descendant his Lord? If the Messiah, who will conquer sin and death, must come from the line of David, if he is a descendant, how can he be superior to David, so superior that David would call him Lord? And yet, there's something deeper to this question. Because this passage, Psalm 110, 110, records a conversation between the Father and the Messiah. A Messiah yet unborn. And yet this conversation is recorded in the past tense. David says, the Lord said to my Lord. And so the question is, is if this life is all there is, if there's no heaven and no age to come, How can David speak of a yet-to-be-born Messiah in the past tense? Psalm 110 assumes another realm, one greater and one more ultimate than the one we are currently experiencing. Psalm 110 will not allow us to believe that this world is all there is. It assumes heaven. It assumes a life to come. It assumes the resurrection. And perhaps that's why it's so often quoted in conjunction with the resurrection in Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 15. But, but at this point, Jesus isn't addressing the Sadducees any longer. He's, he's not trying to prove the resurrection. He's addressing the scribes and the Pharisees, those who already believe in the resurrection. He's not trying to convince them of it so much as to draw out what it means for them. Well, first, it means that he is greater than David. But second, it means that when the Messiah is raised, it will just be the beginning of his putting all his enemies under his feet. He's warning them that even if their plot to kill him should be successful, the story won't be over. Because he will rise again, he will ascend into heaven, he will sit down at the Father's right hand, and he will receive worship from Abraham and from Isaac 
and from Jacob and from Moses and from David. And he will reign in the midst of his enemies until all are subjected to him. That's what his resurrection will signify for his enemies. But what about those who aren't his enemies? What about those who call him Lord? For those, our passage has an entirely different message. First, it tells us that this life is not a time for equality with the angels. That is the life to come. In this life, you will be brought low, even as Jesus was. You will be humbled, mistreated. You will suffer pain, sickness, and even death. But that will not be the end. Because those who call Jesus Lord are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead. And death will no longer be able to affect you. Because after all, he is the God of the living. As the scriptures say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, this is God's promise to you, beloved. Those who come to Jesus Christ in faith, those who surrender to him, will be raised up with him and will enjoy eternity in heaven. God has sworn and he won't change his mind. And to assure us of that, he he gives us a sacrament. A sacrament is is it's it's a sign and it's a seal. It pictures something, but it also uh, it places God's stamp, His seal, on it to tell us that He cannot back out, that He cannot change the terms. The Lord's Supper doesn't just serve as His seal, but a visible reminder of all uh, He did to accomplish this. The bread and the wine are reminders that, that he suffered death at the hands of, of the rulers in Jerusalem and that for a little while he was made lower than the angels and he suffered great injustice. And yet we use bread and wine to signify his, his presence with us because his body isn't on this earth any longer. You can't go visit his bones Because our our Lord Jesus Christ, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And this meal assures us that there is an end coming when, when every knee in heaven and on earth will bow and every tongue will confess that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all his people will be, be welcomed in to an eternal inheritance in heaven. <clears throat> That we will be resurrected from the grave. By our Lord and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has done all these things for us. Amen. I'd like to ask the elders uh, to come up that we might receive the Lord's Supper this morning. And please join me in prayer. Our Lord and our God. We thank you for the resurrection. For without it, we would be a people without hope. We would be lost in our sins without a redeemer. But Jesus came into this world, a brother in the flesh, 
to resurrect hope, to resurrect a people, to resurrect an inheritance. And so we thank you. And we ask that you would teach us what it means to be worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. Teach us to surrender to Jesus, knowing that those who belong to him will be restored to your presence for all eternity with great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.